May it please the listeners, my name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Today, we are joined by three people, which is a first for this podcast, and we also have our first ever returning guest, my partner, Lori Stanziali from our real estate and construction group. Hello, Lori. Hello, Rich. How are you? I'm very well, and she has brought with her two individuals from Building Studio Architects, a small Manhattan architectural firm, Michael Goldblum and John Field. Michael, John, hello. Hi, good morning. Michael, I am told, founded the firm in 1992 and leads its new construction projects, designing multifamily and institutional buildings throughout the city. Since 2010, he's also been a commissioner of the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, and he is a graduate of the Columbia University School of Architecture. John, who's also with us, leads their firm's multifamily residential business, serving large and small landlords with capital improvement design work, including apartment upgrades, amenity spaces, and other lifestyle infrastructure projects. John joined Michael at uh, Building Studio Architects in 1999. He is a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. And Lori, John, and Michael are going to talk today about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on urban living and, very importantly, what it means for the future of apartment buildings in New York City and elsewhere. Lori, let me hand it over to you for more on that. Great. Thank you so much, Rich. And thank you, Michael and John, for for being with us this morning. So this podcast sort of uh, came from my thinking about how this is going to affect our, our design space. Obviously, we're all dealing with changes in our lives as a result of COVID-19. and it, it started to dwell, you started to come to mind to me as to, well, what is this going to look like and how are we going to be redesigning new spaces or retrofitting existing spaces? And I thought who better to, to have a discussion with that, have a discussion with about that than John and Michael. So um, I, I think we can talk about several things here today and we're going to focus on, on residential However, I think a lot of what we're, we're going to talk about is going to translate to commercial spaces and, and office spaces as well. So let's start talking about what the problems are and, and how we assess those problems. I personally live in a, in a high-rise residential building here in the city, so I know what it takes for me to get from my apartment to the outside world and back in. So let me let me turn it over to you guys and and uh, you know Michael or John whoever wants to jump in as to some of the problems that you know make apartment dwellers at, at a higher risk than people living out in the suburbs in individual homes. One of the greatest challenges we have here in the city is density, with all of us sharing common spaces: elevators, lobbies, laundry rooms, sort of high-frequency and high-touch areas. The bigger picture of, of apartment living and, and the challenges around it are the last couple of months, we've all gotten to know our homes a lot better, or many of us anyway. 
And the function of the home has changed for a lot of people from a place where you just crash after the workday on the weekends to uh, a place where you're spending all of your time. And I think that it's exacerbated the challenges that the, that the pandemic poses because it's really become, for many people anyway, their, their entire world. One of the ways that we ameliorated that in the past was with all of these common spaces and amenity areas and lounges and you know shared recreation space gyms. We don't have that anymore, uh, and that has gone into into our apartments. Yeah, and I and it's I think it's really going to be an interesting interesting to see what happens. And I have. Uh, done several panels and and representing a lot of you know developers and have been told you know over and over again that these shared spaces, these communal spaces, are the most popular in in buildings you know up until now. And people were willing to sacrifice a smaller square footage in their apartment because they knew they had a lounge or a gym or a yoga studio or a coffee bar and all of these things in their, in their buildings. And obviously um, that's going to change. And so I, I think as you know, you've already said, a lot of what we do is, is now going to be shifting into our, our existing apartments. Um, some of which for some people, maybe, maybe smaller spaces. It will be interesting to see how that plays out. And, and I think another, you know, one of the things to not only talking about the people living in their, in their spaces and in their homes, but in apartment buildings, we have staff, we have, you know, staff that interact with us every day in a lot of buildings. And I think, you know, some of those things are, are going to change as well. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about what, what we see is, are, are going to be some of these, these changes, um, both within existing apartments as well as the, the, the communal spaces and, and the common areas. How do you see dealing with some existing, existing spaces and how they may be retrofitted to uh, address home living and as well as separation within the home? Well, I think that um, let's start with getting to your apartment uh, and, and, and then we'll move into the apartment itself. I think that Getting to the apartment is going to involve, um, and we already see that landlords are struggling to put in place where they can, uh, more touchless, frictionless passage from outside to inside. So the extent that, that these things can be integrated relatively quickly, a more um, automatic door, people are investigating having elevators shifted to a demand type elevator where you come in with a with a key card or something, it automatically knows that you're going to the eighth floor, let's say, and the, the, the elevator will automatically come to you knowing that you're going to eight and you want to press the button. Similar to what we see in a lot of office buildings now, but right. I, I haven't seen it yet in residential. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, but it's probably coming. We haven't seen it, but we've uh, we've been reading about people investigating it. Certainly, the use of key fobs in lieu of hard locks for, for, a, number, for a number of passaging, for a number of locking situations is certainly being talked about. One of the areas where this starts to overlap, a lot of the accessibility controls that were 
put into place for American with Disabilities Act, for instance, door openers, now have an added use in that they can reduce contact, reduce touch to some of these areas. You can whack at that little panel with your elbow and the door will open for you. Another area that is a concern to a lot of people is, is building staff, as you mentioned, Lori. Depending on the income scale, a lot of buildings have doormen, some buildings have concierges, and what used to be seen as an amenity is now seen as a, a risk. So what building management will choose to do with building staff, especially in buildings where there isn't the ability to have the proper distance between the staff and people coming into the building is, is going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, how do you maintain security for buildings where the security was dependent on the doorman in a small lobby? And now you don't want that doorman there necessarily, and he doesn't want to be near you either. So I think that all of those are issues. That's also a double-edged sword, Michael, because for the larger landlords and institutional ownership, they have to protect their staff as well. So there's an exposure risk, which many landowners are considering. Yeah, and I think also with, with, with shared spaces, which for the you know, things like laundry rooms and gyms and buildings are, are, are probably still going to exist, but maybe we're going to be seeing a mechanism where you have to sign up, where you have to reserve your time, as we see in, in conference rooms. I know in, in our office, we, you know, we, we have a conference room system where you, know, you can see when someone has the conference room, and that's you know, not uncommon in, in a lot of offices. Maybe we're going to see more of that now in residential spaces as well to sort of control the, the, the flow of people. So that's something else we might be seeing, you know, retrofitted. What about the, you know, within spaces itself? So we have now what was a kitchen is now a kitchen slash office or, you know, that, that, that extra bedroom is uh, also used as an office. How do we, you know, I, I know open floor plates were, you know, a big thing. People liked them and having this open space. But now what, how do we partition ourselves if we need to? For, for health reasons, for work reasons, what, what do you guys see as, as dealing with some existing spaces? I think there's going to be a lot more flexible space, space that can transform, space that can be closed off, areas where people can isolate within the apartment, both for health and for work. We can't all share the same room and talk on the same video conference or talk on different video conferences. One thing that's that occurs to me is that the changes that we make within apartments and within buildings that are meant to address the immediate concern over the COVID-19 crisis, a landlord has to judge whether or not these modifications are durable. The hope is that we'll have a vaccine for this in a, in a year or two and that after a decent period of time, people will lessen their need to, to do these extraordinary uh, changes in lifestyle. So a landlord you know, who's, who's owning a building for 10, 15, 20, 100 years has to look at the long view and, and the immediate view. You have to rent out the apartment for next month, but you also have to, you don't want to make modifications to that apartment or to that building that are going to hamstring you down the road. So 
John's emphasis on flexibility and, and mutability makes a lot of sense. But the other, you know, the more macro question is, is the fact that people have through this experience seen that you don't necessarily need to go to the office every day to get your job done, is that going to, as many people are predicting, is that going to bring about a shift in the workforce that lingers even after the pandemic's most severe restrictions fade away? Is there going to be more working from home? Is city life going to be one where you stay in your apartment for longer periods of time on a regular basis across the board, across industries? If that's the case, then people's decisions about their living conditions may change. What was okay for me, you know, whereas in the old days, it was okay for me to have a small apartment, a studio, or a small one-bedroom because I really didn't hang out there much. Now, if I'm working out of that space, maybe I do need extra, space, extra rooms. Maybe I do need more space in, in, within my apartment. This can start to drive a rethinking about apartment mix, room designations, you know, what kind of apartments you're making. And the, that whole rethinking is what kind of interior environment you make also with greening of materials, more greening in general. There are now paints that work to help improve air quality. And all of these are, are enhancements that developers can bring to living environments. It seems to me that we were already moving to more people working from home more often. Just because the technology was available, there were more people who wouldn't come into the office on certain days or might move the entirety of their business operations home. And this experience is very much teaching us that that might be more realistic than we thought of it. So I think there's a a good chance that that trend will continue. And also, you know, even if we get a vaccine for COVID-19 tomorrow, which is not going to happen, this experience is likely to color the extent to which people want to physically interact with other people for a very long time going forward. So do you see that kind of change in attitude impacting you know, apartment, both redesign of existing apartments and potentially design of new apartments? Obviously, a cost analysis is going to be a big issue here as far as what owners, as far as retrofitting existing spaces, that's going to be a consideration, especially in light of, you know, a lot of the new tenant regulations that we're, uh, that are, that ownerships and landlords are, are facing now. So I think we'll, we'll see that. And, and I think also, I, and, and like to hear from you guys what you think about what timeline there may be as far as DOB regulations, Department of Building regulations changing. Um, you know, we do have obviously there are there are always updates as far as air quality and, and, and different things that have to be done. But there certainly I, I suspect we're going to be seeing Department of Building regulations. So there will be landlords who will be forced to do certain retrofits. And how do you think that's going to look? I think it's actually going to be led by the landlords and developers, Laurie. They're more nimble. They have more interest in attracting and protecting uh, their rental units. 
And they're going to be at the forefront of the decision-making and the alterations that make better living spaces. I think regulations may follow that, but I really see them leading it, which will get into cost, but it's a, it's a return that they will see over time. It's an interesting question, Laurie. The law lags behind practice in many cases. And so what, what would be the analogy here? And I think the first one that springs to mind is what we were talking about just a minute ago with Rich. If, in fact, people shift in large numbers from working in offices and living in apartments to living and working in their apartments, then the law doesn't really allow for, or the law proscribes, let's say, business activities within apartments. And me sitting here on my laptop is one thing, but if my business involved delivery and, and shipping of goods or noise or uh, things, things that are normally associated with nine to five business occupancies, the code, you know, theoretically, my neighbor could call 311 and say, hey, that jerk is sewing in his apartment in the middle of the day or, I don't know, uh, hammering leather in the middle of his apartment during the day. And I could theoretically be cited for uh, using my apartment improperly as a business. That distinction, that firewall between workspace and living space is going to have to be re-examined. And I think that that will promote, that will force a change at the DOB if, in fact, it becomes as prevalent as, as it could. And at the zoning, I mean, zoning level, of course, as well. I mean, uh, right. you know, pushing to have residential zoning for the exact reasons that you've, you know, pointed out and, and living in, in shared spaces, apartment buildings that have rules against what you can and cannot do has been what, you know, what everyone has worked towards. And now we may be working away from that a little bit. So it's, it's a really, really interesting concept. So let's, I mean, I think we've spoken about a, a bunch of things in regards to what we may see in, in, in new development. We may see different partitioning. We may see different layouts and, and more bedrooms, more rooms. What about outdoor space? I mean, especially in, in, in urban places like New York City, I mean, obviously there's, it's limited in a lot of buildings. Um, do you think there's going to be a shift to creating more outdoor space so people, if they are living and working in the same place, have some outlet to the, to the outside. Um, what do you guys think about that? Already outlet to the outside, I think we have to, and I think landlords will have to help people take advantage of that. Some of the more successful developments in the city have tremendous amounts of open space. A lot of the newer developments have uh, private roof amenities, and increasing that for existing housing stock is critical. I'm looking out at acres of rooftop from my high rise, and there's tremendous opportunity for increased roof gardens and increased amenity spaces that residents enjoy. And then, but then we get back into it being communal space, however, which may, may in and of itself create some problems that we've already discussed as far as how, how that shared space gets used. 
Yeah, I, I think that I think that ameliorating the uh, you know, in, in a temporary one to three year way, the use of outdoor space is a lot easier than ameliorating it on interior spaces, simply because of scale, also because it's healthier. There was just an op-ed today in the in the Times by a doctor who was talking about how outdoor spaces have been shown by the research to have to be much more safe given the proximity that we're, you know, keeping, keeping proper distance, it's much more safe than, in, than the inside. So I, I think that the use of outdoor space, you know, will accelerate, will be, they'll figure out a way to do it and it will result in a better city in the long run. Uh, it does dovetail with regulation that is already in place where all roofs in New York City are required to be changed to either solar or green roofs if there are new buildings or if uh, a new roof is being put on. So even for all of those old buildings outside of John's window, the minute they need a new roof, and that does happen every, uh, every few years, uh, the roof will have to be upgraded to either solar or to, to green roofs. The problem is that the least expensive green roofs are not really walkable. So how the regulation is tuned to allow for people to use those roofs will be an interesting wrinkle in, in the regulation. I mean, the, the purpose of the regulation is not to create more open space for people, but to cut down on the heat island effect in the city and also to reduce the rainwater flow to the sewer system. The fact that now we have a more pressing need for outdoor recreational space may push the city to change the regulation a little bit to accommodate that use as well. Interesting. So one more question before we, before we wrap up. And I know, again, I'm, I'm here in the city and I think any, anybody who's renting an apartment, buying an apartment, storage, storage space has always been of utmost importance to apartment dwellers. I know, you know, closets, you know, closets, 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 how many closets are there? Always super important. But I think also, and I'd like your opinion, are we going to be seeing other types of storage, you know, not just your, you know, typical clothing closet and things like that, but people are are less inclined to run out to the supermarket every day for things. People are buying things in greater bulk. So you know, what are, what are we going to see now that um, these live workspaces and, and also maybe some reluctance to go out into a store every day, um, how that's going to affect the built space? I think that's going to continue to be a challenge, Laurie, especially for our existing housing stock. We need larger pantries and new building may incorporate that. Already we have zoning regulations that encourage bike rooms and bike parking spaces, but ways to keep bicycles, transportation, sporting goods, and things like that out of the apartments, sort of a separate hallway storage, perhaps. Other ways to keep your interior environment clean and provide storage for things that need to be outside. If this became a real priority for the city, right, and let's say that it became widespread that people wanted more storage space because they were spending more time at home. One way for the city to encourage it would be, again, to look at the zoning code to try to either require more storage or 
or maybe in addition to make those spaces incentive spaces similar to bike rooms and things like that uh, where they would not be counted as floor area general storage is already not counted as floor area but if you were to put let's say a a storage closet on on an upper floor in a, in a building it would it would be considered as as a floor area and developers are hawks when it comes to bonuses of this type and if the city were to incentivize developers by let's say allowing a certain amount of storage per unit as free floor area you would see a dramatic increase in the integration of storage spaces in new developments interesting all right well i guess we'll we'll see what develops so i want to thank you both for for joining us this morning this has been uh really informative and 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 look we don't really know what the future is going to hold and i think these are just all things that are or, or should be on everyone's mind whether they're designing new space whether they own existing properties and and what's going to come down the road and I like the idea that the the owners are going to be driving the bus on it. I think a lot of owners will uh, will be happy if that that is uh, how the future plays out. And I think a lot of these things are, as I had mentioned, are going to translate into office space and and other commercial spaces. And I think we're 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 gonna we're gonna see some changes. And I have no doubt that uh, that you guys will be uh, leading the charge on. Uh, designing new spaces and, and helping uh, in new development as well as uh, retrofitting existing spaces for your clients. So I, I really thank you for, for joining us and lending your, your insights and expertise. It's been uh, very enlightening. My thanks as well. And again, that's John Field and Michael Goldblum from Building Studio Architects and my partner, Lori Stanziali from our real estate and construction group. Thanks to all three of you. There are lots of changes on the way for urban living and many other things. Thank you all once again. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs>